Professor Allen's Comics Reading Journal for the month of May 2019. Welcome to episode 48 of this podcast series, which means that this show, the newest one for our network, which started as a three-episode pilot, a summer replacement series back in 2015, has been going on for four years now. That's crazy. And the concept of this show is for us to just have a brief chat about what comics I've read since the last time we had one of these brief chats, which should make this pretty much the books I read during May. Those issues are listed weekly in blog posts at eyesandearsblog.blogspot.com, and I regularly repost those on my Facebook and Twitter so you can find those. But those posts don't exactly count as spoilers for this podcast since those are just lists. And here, there's a little more review, a little more critique, and a little more discussion. But first, a little feedback. On the episode from two months ago, Luke Giaconetti from Earth Destruction Directive said he appreciated the shout-out, which I gave when I talked about some of the books he gave me. Regarding The Avenger and Doc Savage, Dynamite actually put out a miniseries also titled Justice Inc., which featured the two pulp heroes teaming up, as well as bringing in the shadow. I picked up the trade out of a $5 bin a few years back at South Carolina Comic Con. Worth checking out if you find it cheap, if only to see the contrasts in the three leads. I've really enjoyed revisiting some of these Golden Age pulp heroes, as well as modern-day takes or modern-day versions of characters modeled on those heroes. And last time in the April episode, which for issues of convenience, I actually released the morning of April 30th. And Trevor Williams did not like that one bit. I refuse to listen until May 1st. I appreciate your commitment to holding me accountable, Trevor. I'm sure nobody actually wonders about this, but of course, these episodes are not exactly the comics I read during a month. They are the comics that I read during weeks, which are posted on the Saturday of that particular month. So that's how the April episode could be released on April 30th, because I started recording it on Saturday, April 27th, the day of the last blog post for the month, which is a fact I'm sure nobody cares about. (laughs) That last episode received social media love from Sir Iowa's Joe, award-winning Supergirl blogger Dr. Ange, Clinton from Coffee and Comics, Karen from the Very Sweet Between the Pages blog, where pop culture and food meet, Robert Ludwig, the most sane man among us, Pat from the Longbox Crusade, and illustrator Yul R. Espinoza. Thanks for the supports, everybody. And now, on to the books that I read last month. As I do on this show, I'm categorizing or classifying the books that I read. And first are issues that I read specifically for podcast appearances, the homework books. And for Shortbox Showcase number 64, I read the independent, as in DIY, comics Cog and Flame number one and Nightingale number one. And for Quarterbin Podcast 135, 
I read a bunch of comics that I picked up for free at 2019 Free Comic Book Day. And you can hear me talk about all of these on that Quarterbin episode. Avengers, Captain Canuck, Doctor Who, Hope, Little Lulu, Malika, My Hero Academia, Strike Force 7, Spider-Man, Star Wars Adventures, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and The Tick. And also the 25-cent cover price Year of the Villains book from DC. As you can see, it did not do too badly at Free Comic Book Day. I also picked up one that was actually from last year's Free Comic Book Day, Worlds of Aspen. And I guess you could call the next one a podcast-adjacent book, because I picked this up at the Space Small Press Con that we talked about in Shortbox 64, but it was a mainstream DC book, and it was in the Take One, They're Free box that one of the vendors had at their table. I think it was the comic store that was a main sponsor of the con, but I'm not totally sure of that. But the book that I picked out of there was Creeper, number one, from 1997, written by Len Kaminsky. I'm a fan of the Creeper, which I know sends shockwaves through certain of my podcasting buddies, some of whom run award-winning blogs. In this one, Jack Ryder starts, appropriately enough, in the asylum, and towards the end of the issue, two things happen. One, the creeper emerges, and two, we learn that his counselor might not be... Come on, you know the rest of the sentence, comic fans. He may not be what he appears to be. And comics I read for listening podcasts. I read pages 325 to 348 of the Xenozoic trade, which contained the story Another System, which the kind and friendly Duchess Ruth and Duke Darren of the Sutherlands covered on episode 16 of the Xenozoic Xenophiles podcast. And that story wraps up the trade. And until Mark Schultz puts out more stories in this world, that's all we have. I thoroughly enjoyed these, and I'm so glad that the Duke and Duchess brought them and brought this creator to my attention. On to the books that we read right off the shelves. Adventures of the Super Sons, number 10. This one has moved into the last act, only two issues remaining after this one. And Rex Luthor has gathered his team of cosplaying supervillains including a Bizarro who is very confused about how he's supposed to speak. And they're going up against our little heroes and their robotic buddy Jonah Hex. And Tommy Tomorrow returns at the end, and he's not all that happy. Justice League Dark, the Lords of Order, have arrived to set things aright. And to them, nothing is more disorderly than magic. So they make our magical good guys an offer which will defeat the other kind and the magical bad guys. A removal of all magical powers and memories thereof in exchange for a little thing I like to call their very lives. Wonder Woman 69 and 70. This is probably the last arc that I'll be talking about for this title as it hasn't been resonating with me recently, 
But for me and M, a 70-issue run is pretty good for us. In these couple of issues, a small town has been giving in to all of their lustful desires, brought on by evil cupids under the control of Atlantiades. They are an interesting character. And discussions of the value of love and desire and romance, and whether we should give in to each of those impulses every single time they strike. I like that bit. And from the good folks at Alterna, providers of new newsprint comics at the awesome price of $1.50, I wrapped up a miniseries, Midnight Mystery Number 4, and this was less of a wrap-up of the main story, which actually happened last issue, but is really more of a denouement and an intro to the next mini coming out in a few months. So not a great issue in itself, but the awesome thing is that at only $1.50, I can give a book a lot more grace. Also, this comic included one bit of complete awesomeness, a link to a page, iwantmystery.com slash deadletters. Deadletters is the name of this issue. At that site, iwantmystery.com slash deadletters, is a player that will play a fully produced audio drama version of this comic. Did you hear me podcasting's Michael Bailey? Because that is simply awesome. And on to the general comic reading that I did. I've talked about recently discovering that I have a colleague on campus who also podcasts about comic books. So I started listening to Drew's show, Comics for Fun and Profit, and they recently ran a social media contest, and I was one of the winners. So via that show, and via actually a listener of that show, Jason from Hawaii, I read a pair of signed comics whose value I probably destroyed by even opening their covers. Sorry about that, Drew. Harley Quinn, Be Careful What You Wish For, and Ant-Man and the Wasp, both from 2018. Harley finds a magic lamp, complete with a genie, and guess what? Things don't go as well as she imagines, over and over and over again. The scene with her wishing to be more like Power Girl, if you know what I mean, was particularly funny. I know that's the theme of every story with a djinn, that things ain't gonna go how you hope, but somehow the character of Harley is kind of the perfect vehicle for a morality tale such as this, and Connor and Palmiati know how to deliver this kind of Harley story. The specific issue was signed by artist Chad Harden, who worked on a few pages of the interior. The Ant-Man and Wasp of the Ant-Man and the Wasp comic were Scott Lang and Nadia Van Dyne. They end up heading into the microverse to fight aliens, and there's some really good points about how the microverse works. Like, how do you breathe when you're smaller than an oxygen molecule? And the banter between the characters was also good. Pretty fun read. The specific issue was signed by cover artist David Nakayama. Thank you, Drew. Appreciate you and your brother running this contest. And then, from the 50-cent box at Pulp Reality, I read X-Factor 201. I've said this more than once, that the X-Books are a blind spot for me. But if you put Dr. Doom on the cover, I'm buying your book. Especially if he's looming over a defeated Mr. Fantastic as he is on this cover 
The problem is the insides of this book, which just spends a whole lot of real estate with, oh yeah, X, X Factor, I think they're called. I mean, there's just not enough doom here in this X Factor book. Although what doom there is, is pretty good. Good work from Peter David on that. Adventure Comics number zero from 2009. This one contained a reprint of the first Legion story from Adventures 247, which isn't a great story, but it certainly is newsworthy. And I don't think I've ever read a color version of that story. But as the super future friends would always remind us, there's going to be plenty of tunneling and general messing around. The story also had a six-page preview of the then-current storyline, but that was not the main event at all. Now, from the three-for-a-dollar sale at World's Greatest Comics, I read Racer X number 1 from Now Comics from 1988. This is, for all intents and purposes, a secret origin of Chim Chim the Chimp. That was a cool reveal, because for the first 80% of the issue, I kept thinking about how could there be two different super smart monkey types? How are they going to fit that together? And they did. Good read. Now, I used the cover of this book as the art for that particular week's list on the Eyes and Ears blog. And when I posted that on Facebook, Luke Giaconetti pointed out, Racer X, come on, everybody knows he's Speed's brother. Which I said, spoilers. And Dave McIlvaney, how Carr said, well, Speed Racer doesn't know, does he? <laughs> to, to which point Luke said, Speed's not what you might call book smart. <laughs> you know, even if I hadn't liked the issue, which I did, that little Facebook conversation would have been worth reading it anyway. <laughs> and uh, back to the 50-cent boxes of, at Pulp Reality, used book and record store, which is near where I work. I also picked up Conan the Sumerian 14, which was a single-issue story that involved Conan's mother. That portion of the story was written and drawn by Tim Truman, and it was very good, but there was also a framing sequence, a couple of pages on either side, that was drawn by Joe Kubert, and that was a real treat to see. Dr. Anthony, the engineer, sent a package around New Year's Day, which had a bunch of cool books in it, such as Moth and Whisper, number one from Aftershock, the two greatest thieves in the city, the Moth and the Whisper, were supposedly rivals, but they're actually a couple, a couple with a teenage kid. And when the parents disappear, the teen takes up both mantles to not let their disappearances become known and also try to locate them. It's a great premise and a pretty good first issue. Dr. Anthony also sent Justice League United 11 from 2015. This is a crazy mishmash of characters. Batgirl, Ivy, Mira, Swampy, Jason Blood, and others. A team formed just for this specific mission. And that's a nice setup, having a huge cast available, but only using those ones that fit the specifics of the mission. And the mission here involves the green and its sudden disappearance. And longtime friend of the network, Ron Sadowski, one of the very early members of the hashtag Comic Book Circle of Life, also sent a care package recently with a pair of 
Armageddon 2001 annuals, Flash Annual 4, and Detective Comics Annual 4. I'm a fan of What If and Elseworld stories, and these are not exactly those, I guess, but they're pretty close. Wave Rider touches a hero and sees possible futures. Well, that is sort of exactly an Elseworld story now that you mention it. So I do tend to like Armageddon 2001 because of that overarching promise, the let's see a potential future scenario. One of those two stories, the Flash one, was a little shaky, but Detective Comics was really good. It featured Talia, and I'm a sucker for her relationship with Batman, and it also dealt with Batman's treatment of his Robins. And that's also a rich vein of potential stories. And some kids' books that I read, some from Sir Rob's Care Package, some from the Quarter Bins, and Three for a Buck boxes, some from Ron Sadowski, and some from my brother-in-law Phil, who just moved to our area here in Central Ohio. I read Jughead's Diner, number one, Jughead Double Digest, 182, Dennis the Menace, 10, Laugh, number nine, Sad Sacks Army Life Parade, 42, and Life with Archie, 204, 230, and 254. A lot of these books try one-page gag strips, usually four panels or six panels, maybe think a Sunday newspaper comic strip. And of all of those, Sad Sack just might do it the best. Archie's not bad, but for the consistency of getting to a really good punchline really quickly, I think Sad Sack is the man. And these Life with Archie issues were cool, because they're more adventure-oriented than straight comedy setups. They were longer stories, 11 pages, and had more of a danger or drama involved, and I wasn't really expecting that. All right, time to take a break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about the graphic novels, trade paperbacks, and long runs that I read during May. When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this? Look. You can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98s with the 300s. Lori the Morris hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robison, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. And we're back to talk about trades, long runs, and miniseries that I read last month. And from the 50-cent box at Pulp Reality, I found Doc Savage 19 through 21 from 1990. And as I think I said last episode, if you're going into a store called Pulp Reality, you need to walk out with something featuring Doc Savage, 
maybe John Carter, the Phantom, the Shadow, somebody from that era. Now, this storyline, The Air Lord, was written by Mike W. Barr and uses the 1937 Hindenburg disaster as its jumping-off point. I think Doc Savage works best in that era, and if you can anchor a story to a real-world event, I think that works even better. This one operates as a mystery as well, with five potential candidates as the evil villain, the Air Lord. Doc and his five are all well-used and characterized, and the plotting and story was excellent. It's a very solid story arc. From there, I also picked up more books from a title from Hero Comics, Flare, number 2, 3, 4, and 7. There's a bit of a spark of real quality here, despite some issues with coloring and a few other corners that you can tell were cut, which is not unheard of for small press books, especially in the 90s. But pretty good scripting, and that's, for me, the backbone of a comic book. I do want to point out specifically issue number four, because it had four stories in it. Now, these issues all have 52 pages, which does make that outrageous price tag of 50 cents a little more palatable. But in this one, the 52 pages were made up of four stories that each had a similar theme about life being a little more complicated than you think. It's not just about good guys and bad guys, and that being a hero is a lot more difficult than you'd think. So we have a story of a villain deciding to help a hero. We have how difficult it is for a hero to try to solve, quote-unquote, a domestic violence issue. You have a hero learning that stopping one small-time hood does nothing to address a systematic problem. It's the kind of nuance and subtlety that you don't always get from comics. And although these hero books are far from perfect, I do appreciate the boldness of what they tried to do on occasion. I visited my dad in North Carolina the week before Memorial Day, and when I do that, I pack a showcase that I've been working my way through, and I read Challengers of the Unknown 9 through 12. This is the exact moment when the Jack Kirby and Wally Wood team leaves the title. So there's an obvious letdown there. The book goes from being epic and awesome to being, you know, solidly traditional Silver Age. The sparkle fades a bit. Now, these stories all have writer unknown in the table of contents, and that's explained that Arnold Drake and Ed Heron shared the writing duties for the title at this point, with neither being specifically credited for a particular story. And these ones do have a rhythm, a pattern, a, a bit more of a formula than the prior issues did. But they did share some of the stuff that I really dig about this era of the Challengers, how they tapped into the sci-fi of that era. We have warring aliens and alternate dimensions, as well as plain old evil human scientists. And in these four issues, eight stories total, June really does take a back seat. That was noticeable in these stories, much more often being the damsel in distress 
than the heroine who humbles the team by saving them from themselves, which had happened more than once in the first eight issues. So still enjoyable, still some charm, but I've got to admit some of the magic has faded a bit. And I wrapped up a series that I started last month, reading Mind the Gap, 6 through 15, from Image in the 2012-2013 time frame. Jim McCann wrote this story, which is about a young, wealthy woman named Elle, who someone tried to murder and ended up leaving her in a coma. But Elle has discovered that she has the ability to temporarily jump into the bodies of the comatose or the freshly dead. And the story starts to go a different way in the second trade, as the mystery surrounding her attack comes to the forefront. Eventually, we end up in pre- and post-World War II Germany, as the conspiracy goes all the way back to there. And the family aspects, the secret aspects, the eventual goal of the whole experiment that led to L having these abilities, it really all held together pretty well. It's a solid story. It's an interesting idea. It's a little wacky. It's a little out there. So you have to be willing to go that direction. But I thought it was delivered in a very interesting and entertaining way. And continuing another series that I started last month about the good and noble Dr. Doom taking over the suit of Tony Stark's lackey and struggling to make people understand that not only is he a hero now, but he always has been. So I read the second trade, Infamous Iron Man 7 through 12. Of course, Big Comic can't exactly be trusted to accurately tell the stories of the great and powerful Doom, but they did a pretty decent job showing the humanity and generosity of Doom as he works with S.H.I.E.L.D., although begrudgingly on their part, to bring down a bunch of AIM baddies. This trade brings Mephisto and Doctor Strange into the mix, joining The Thing, Reed Richards, and Doom's Mommy. Except that by the end of the series, we learn that some of those people aren't who they seemed or claimed to be. But don't worry, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about Dr. Doom. He appeared to be a benevolent hero, and of course, he was, is, and air shall be. There was a lot of good stuff in here, although I have to say that it was written by Bendis. So there are a lot of scenes of people sitting around and talking. But a lot of that talk was really, really good. I'm definitely glad that I read this trade. Hail Doom! Hail Doom! Hail Doom! And again, another series I started last month and continued. I read Captain Midnight 8 through 19. This is the Dark Horse title featuring a patriotic World War II era hero who has just reappeared in our world and our era, and he has not aged or changed. Basically, he's Captain America, and this is a pretty interesting take on that well-known template. In this version, our patriotic Superman 
has trouble fitting into the modern world where his black-and-white morality is a misfit in a more nuanced, subtle world of greys. In these issues, an old friend appears to have betrayed the captain, or at least the captain certainly looks at it that way. But the old buddy, he doesn't see it that way. And in this clash, we see not just a physical fight, because comics, but we do see a clash of worldviews, of priorities, and of differing ways to achieve the same broad goal. Joshua Williamson did a really nice job taking a pretty well-known comic book concept and taking a new modern spin on it. So I really liked the way that this wrapped up and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, digging through my to-read pile, I found another book that Dr. Anthony the Engineer sent in, a book from 2014 Free Comic Book Day, Project Black Book. That is the name of the secret project Alien Tech that gave Captain Midnight his powers. And that story also included fellow Dark Horse hero Brain Boy. And also, in that same comic universe, I read the Skyman one-shot, which was followed by Skyman 1 through 4. This featured some crossover characters, including a few appearances from Captain Midnight himself. The setup for the ongoing Skyman book was interesting, as the Caucasian man in the suit says a few uh, unwise things to the media at one point, and in a rush to fix their PR problems, the government finds a worthy African-American man to take up the mantle, although many of the core issues surrounding the Skyman program remain the same. So he wasn't exactly welcomed into the program and was pushed aside by the powers that be. The Skyman program just wants him to be the face of their program, let's be honest, the diverse face of their program. But he goes rogue to do what he can do so that the program and the government itself and Skyman lives up to the standards that it promotes for others. Very interesting take. I thought the concept, the idea, the setup was slightly better than the execution and the ending. But that being said, it was still a very good series. I also picked up a trade of a comic series I revisited last month and planned to read one trade of each month over the summer to get closer to being caught up. And that is The Walking Dead, 157 to 162. We have Negan trying to earn his keep with Rick and the team, earn their respect and all that. And he does a heck of a job against the Whisperers, although Lucille is a casualty of war. Alpha's daughter Lydia spends some quality time with Carl. Eugene actually contributes to the cause. But Father Gabriel has disappeared and the Whisperers have not been finally put away once and for all. And through the Hoopla digital app, I picked up the second half of a very well-thought-of series that I started last year, Tom King's excellent The Vision, 7 through 12. In this volume, the ramifications of Vision's wife killing a man tear up the artificial family, and the Avengers have to get involved at that point This is a very intense story exploring some very particular and important questions like, 
What is life? What is love? What is family? What is God? What is justice? And those questions, those are just the start. I'm a fan of the vision, especially the relationship with Scarlet Witch, and this is an interesting extrapolation of the end of that relationship. To me, this was King's breakout work, and he has continued to produce interesting, thought-provoking comics. And this one had some really interesting, really good comic book writing in it. I've mentioned before that I loaded up my Nook a while back with a bunch of stuff from the Digital Comic Museum, digitalcomicmuseum.com. These are public domain digital books from the 40s and 50s, and I read some more of those. In honor of the great movie, Shazam! I read Captain Marvel Adventures 18 and 24 from the early 40s, and also 115 from 1915. As you would expect, the post-war issue was quite different from the ones coming out during World War II. The war era issues had a few exciting stories each, and then usually one cringeworthy depiction. And that's, you know, it's never surprising, but it's always disappointing. The 1950 story had less of that, at least less of that in an overt sense. Now, one thing I like about this series, this is again, Captain Marvel Adventures, is that compared to many of the others I read from this era, like, say, Catman, is that three of every four stories in this issue actually featured Captain Marvel and or his family of characters. And I appreciate that. Sometimes, like I said, you just get the title character in one story, and then you have five, six, seven other stories featuring other characters as backups. So I appreciate that. And issue 115 had a story featuring Mr. Talkie Bunny, and that's always a good thing. And I read The Spirit 2 and 5 from the early 1950s. This surprised me in how funny it was. For some reason, I was totally thinking this would be pulpy and noir, more like The Shadow than these stories were. Maybe this was because this was from the 50s and that it was starting to get infected with a little silver ageyness, perhaps. But the art, and even the stories themselves, had, I'm going to say it, sort of a Mad Magazine feel. And I mean, Mad Magazine at its best. I'm not sure I've read any spirit from this era or before. And I did enjoy this, but again, there were many elements about it that did kind of surprise me. And I read from the Digital Comics Museum also a classic kids book, Andy Comics, number 21 from 1948. This was completely on the Archie template, and Archie had been around for about six years at this point. But this comic, at least this this issue, totally lacked the charm and the supporting cast that really makes Archie a pretty outstanding comic. There wasn't anybody as quirky or enjoyable as, say, Jughead or B&V, Miss Grundy, uh, Reggie, Pop Tate, Moose, Dilton, etc. I mean, this story, it, it... It was okay, but I can't say much about Andy Comics beyond that. And I think that's everything. In terms of my favorite reads of the month, my favorite issues, some of the free comic book day books were good reads. Infamous Iron Man was doomtastic, doomerific, doomtabulous, one might even say. The Xenozoic story was a good read as was Moth and Whisper, number one. 
except for best read of the month, it's clearly the back half of the Vision series by Tom King. And it was best when it was all crashing down around the title character with the Avengers against him and bad things happening on the home front. And all of that was in Vision number 11, my favorite read of the month. Now, next month, June... I'm going to knock out the next trade of Walking Dead, like I said. But other than that, I'm not sure where I'm going. I'll just let the comics reading muse guide my way, as well as the cheap bins. But whatever I do, end up reading. I will be here to talk about those books in an episode that ought to be out sometime in early July, probably right before Independence Day. Feel free to let me know what you think of this episode and what you think of any of these books that I mentioned, especially if you've read any of them. You can send that feedback via email to relativelygeeky at gmail.com or as a comment on the Facebook and blog post for the episode. The blog is at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. You can follow the network on Twitter at relatively underscore geek and, of course, the network has its own page on Facebook. Come join us. All are welcome. Thanks for listening, and keep the pages turning.